But let us get into the word. We are in Hebrews 12 this morning. So make your way to Hebrews 12. Before we read, let's once again go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, our Lord, our Savior, our God, our hero. We believe in you. We believe in your word. We believe in your nature, your character, your power. We believe that you are good, that you are kind, that you are patient, that you are gracious and merciful, that you are the God of peace. We hope in you, we are confident in you. When our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our lives, Lord, attend to you, nothing is impossible. But the truth is, all of us, Lord, we struggle, we fight with ourselves, with this world, with the enemy. We very easily find ourselves tied in a knot. So this morning, as we sit at your feet and we listen to your word, as we study it, as we seek to hear your voice, Lord, untangle us. Untangle our minds. Untangle our hearts. Untangle those circumstances in life, Lord, that we have no idea how to deal with. We need your wisdom. We need you desperately. In all things, Lord, lead us. In all things, be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking into Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is all we are going to cover this morning because there is much in there. If you remember from the very beginning of Hebrews, I know that we've been in Genesis doing an in-depth verse by verse there, but Hebrews is what sent us back there in the first place. Hebrews has over it this repetitious comment about something being better. And ultimately, what is described as better is Jesus is better. So all the way back in the first chapter of Hebrews, if you want to look there, it's in verse 4. It says, having become so much better than the angels. This word better, it means that Jesus is more prominent. He is higher in rank. He is preferable. He is more useful, more advantageous, greater, stronger. Ultimately, this word better is superior. So in this statement, in this umbrella that Jesus is better, you can finish this sentence than fill in the blank. Jesus is better than your spouse. Jesus is better than the air that you breathe. Jesus is better than the sin that you struggle with. He is better than your job. He is better than your hobby. He's better than your vacation. He is better than anything that enamors your heart and that you love to do, that you love to pursue. Jesus is better. And this letter that's being written to Hebrews, these Hebrews are Christians. They are Jews who have turned away, from, not turned away, 
They haven't turned away from the true and living God, but they have turned away from a religion that's about the law to God and his grace and the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, where he is now, that he is coming back, the gospel in its entirety. These Jewish believers in Christ, they've turned to Jesus. This letter is a constant exhortation and a constant warning that it's clear that in this community for these believers, Jesus has doled. As they've passed the honeymoon period of being saved and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what was once just grand and illuminating and everything is new because of the ruts of life and the routine of life, it's become dull. And as Jewish believers are looking to Jesus in faith, they're still fellowshipping together as Jews. So very easily, they're going to gravitate back to their old religion in their own ways. So throughout this letter, it's a conversation. Jesus is better than any earthly high priest. Jesus is better than any temple. Jesus is better than the rest that Joshua did not provide because Jesus is the ultimate rest. Jesus is better than any prophet. He is better than Moses. Jesus is better than any teacher. Jesus is a better sacrifice. He has better promises. Everything about Jesus is better. And now, as we've turned back here in Hebrews 12, as the conversation is going... We hit this another in this letter, therefore statement. And every time you hit a therefore statement in the Bible, you want to remind yourself of what's being discussed. So we're going to sit in just a couple of passages this morning, just a couple of verses in depth. But we want to remember that the bigger discussion that is going on is what does it mean for you and for me and for us together to look to Jesus as our God, as our Savior, and truly better than anything, everything, everyone, in all eternity. How do, we, how do we continue to encourage each other to look to him in all things? The therefore statement here becomes important because this first sentence, it's, it, people can get pretty weird with this, that we are surrounded by this great cloud, this great gloop, group of witnesses or those who are bearing testimony and where it gets weird is that this uh, the prior chapter is listing out all of these different individuals this is what their faith looked like this is what they were who they were looking to God in their relationship and their circumstances in life and this is what they did in obedience to God in relationship with him, this is what the circumstances of their life looked at. So sound, seeing how we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, it's using the imagery of uh, whether it's Greek or whether it's Roman, we know exactly what it's like today, just the athletic atmosphere of the day. So the athletic competitions where you have a stadium that's filled with people watching those who are running the race, doing the, the competition. So the weirdness sits in this is it's, it does not convey, but some people think it conveys, like heaven and those who are in heaven are watching our every move. As though that heaven is some kind of, uh, you know, a reality TV program gone amok and gone haywire. Because again, if all heaven was watching us every single day, what would all of heaven be doing? Change the channel, I did not want to see that, right? And who, is, who's, who has heaven's attention? Anytime that we have a glimpse of those who are in heaven, they are looking at the one who is on the throne, period. They are worshiping him. They are praising him. Yet, it's clear from the word that heaven is attentive to the things that are going on in this world. These are going to be up on the wall. I'll run through these verses pretty quick. Um, so don't bother turning there, but you can write these down in your notes. 1 Peter 1.10 says, Of this salvation, the salvation that we are sitting in, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the prophets, those in the Old Testament, have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, to me, 
They were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified, when God testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and not just the sufferings, but the glories that would follow. To them, to the prophets of the Old Testament, it was revealed that, not to themselves, but ultimately it's to us. They were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. This is the gospel that's been communicated through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen to this. Things which angels desire to look into. Literally this word is angels desire to stoop down and look into not our lives, but they're stooping down and they're looking into the activity of God in our lives. Angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They are not omnipresent. They are not in multiple places at one time. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is ever-present. Only God is all-powerful. God is the only one who is staring down into our souls and sees everything. And he still loves us. And he's still gracious to us. And he's looking to form us into the image of his son as we submit to him. Yet, it's clear that heaven's attention is looking into the activities of God. In Luke 15.10, Jesus speaking says, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven knows when a human being turns away from their sin and the wages of that sin, which is death, and turns to faith and life in Jesus Christ. And heaven erupts not just for that person, but to God's glory for what God has done. And they're stooping down and they're looking into this. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, I think that God has displayed us, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, the apostles last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to men there are both to angels and to men. So again, all those three verses that I just mentioned, there is very clear from the word of God that the angels, these ministering spirits that are sent forth by God to do his will, that they are attentive to the things that are going on. Not every single nuance like God knows, but there is their commissioned. They, they as they are looking at the grand scheme of what God is doing in this world. Revelation 6.10, this is the fifth seal. And here we have the voice of martyrs who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony, what they believe and what they were holding on to in regards to Jesus Christ. It says that they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So here, these martyrs, these people who are human beings who have died in the flesh, their spirit has gone to be with the Lord. They are looking to the Lord and they are asking a question. God, when are you going to judge? Aware of God's, again, overall scheme that's going on in the world, God's action. In this, in that passage, when you continue to read, God tells them to, to rest for a little while longer. And then the last one that has in regards to human beings, Luke 9, verse 30 says, Behold, two men talked with him, being Jesus, who were Moses and Elijah. Weird, weird passage. Who appeared in glory and spoke, listen to this, of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So you have Peter and James and John taken up on this mountain with Jesus, and he is transfigured, which means who he is on the inside is also being displayed on the outside, his light, his glory, who Jesus is in truth. But Jesus is having a conversation with two men from the past who God has sent to have a conversation with his son, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. But what are they having a conversation about? Jesus' death, his cross. There I have no doubt whatsoever that as Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, the intention, the attention of all of heaven was upon him. 
and watching that event, seeking to understand that event. And all of heaven, as spectators, they're spectating. They are looking at God as spectators. So this here in, in Hebrews 12, 1, the, the focus on the cloud of witnesses, this group of witnesses, is we have before us in the word of God a huge group of individuals that we can look to that are going to point us to faith in God. Their testimony, their witness, their life is going to continually communicate to us, God is faithful. God is real. God is true. God is powerful. God is holy. God has dealt with your sin. God will provide for you. He cares for you. He is attentive. God is attentive to every nuance of your life. He sees everything and he loves you. It's an incredibly... Truly, it is, it is, if you are uncomfortable with the knowledge that God sees everything about you, that discomfort is to drive you to faith and trust in him. It's to drive you so that he can free you from that discomfort so that you can be in that position for him. I am so thankful that he is attentive to everything about me, the big, the small, my struggles, my fights, my failings, my mistakes, my relationships, my activities. He is there watching. He is there changing. He is there conforming me into his son's image. His will is being performed. And all of my difficulties and all of my struggles and all of my joys and all of my rejoicings, he is there. And he is watching. And the testimony of those who have found him faithful in history it encourages me. It causes my heart and my mind to swell in regards to faith in him, looking to him. Remember what these people have done. And that is ultimately what these witnesses are performing. We are going to walk through a variety of passages to help define for us what this race is. Because look here in verse 2, or verse 1, it's still. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race. So when it talks about the race, the word there, it's, it's, it's for the games. So it'd be no different. So Paul is using, well, if Paul is the writer of Hebrews, but Paul uses this imagery often. He's using a, a cultural phenomenon of the day. People would know about the sporting events of the day. It's easy imagery for them to sit in, just like it's easy imagery for us to sit in the sports of today. Whether it's tennis or whether it's swimming or golf or football, you name your favorite sport. In regards to that sport, in regards to that game, there is something that's similar about those activities with this race of faith. And this word, when it comes to race, it is dealing with a struggle. It is dealing with a conflict. It is dealing with this, this wrestling that you are dealing with in your life as you follow Jesus Christ. So as we walk through these verses, it's going to help give us a full flavor of what's going on here in Hebrews. So first, if you want to turn in your Bibles, turn to Colossians 2. I'd love for you to know where these passages are in your word. Otherwise, they'll also be up on the wall. The point of this is that the word of God is the best commentary on the word of God. Amen? We don't need to sit in other commentaries. We don't need to sit in other people's ideas and how they phrased it. The singular best commentary on God's word is God's word. Because when you dig in, you see the themes. And all of a sudden you get that full flavor of the taste that is going on in regards to the subject matter. So as we want to taste Hebrews fully, Colossians 2 says, and this is Paul writing to the church there in Colossae. I want you to know what great conflict, that's our word for games in Hebrews, conflict, that I, Paul, have for you, all y'all in Colossae and those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh 
And this is the conflict. This is the struggle. This is the game, the race that Paul is engaged in. That's their hearts. May be encouraged, being knit together in love. And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom the Father and Christ, as God, including the Holy Spirit, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as Paul is talking about these games, using this analogy of sporting events, look at here again in Colossians. He's talking about this great conflict, the conflict, the struggle that he he is in in life. It's not against his flesh. Yes, it's against prince and principalities. Yes, it's against himself to stay on that path with Jesus. It's not against necessarily those, well, again, all the activities of life are being wound up in this as Paul is on mission looking to Jesus Christ and the activities of his life. But the activities of his life, the desire, the struggle that he's had, that he had, was so that Christ would be formed in the hearts of believers, so that they would be the ones, that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love, that they would, with all the riches, that they would attain to all the riches of what the full assurance and understanding, pressing into this knowledge and understanding of who Christ is, the knowledge of the mystery of God. Awesome. First Thessalonians 2. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, the church there in Thessaloniki. But even after we, even, if, even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, you can go sit in the book of Acts and read the context. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Here's our same word in much conflict. Philippians, if you turn back to your left, few pages. Philippians 1 verse 29 says, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, listen to this, not only to believe in him, not only to have faith in him, not only to trust in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict, that's our word, which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul there in jail as he's writing this letter. So the suffering that Paul was going through, how he was being spitefully treated because he was proclaiming the word of God in boldness and in much conflict, that same suffering for Jesus' namesake, the same conflict that we saw in Paul is the same conflict, that same race that each one of us is engaged in in different ways. And we'll get into that in a minute. The end of Acts, Acts chapter 20, Paul again, he's speaking to the the elders of the church of Ephesus that are meeting with him. Paul's talking about, again, these things that he has suffered, but he's, he's talking about the things that, the suffering that is before him, that is being prophesied. He said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that... I may finish my race, and here it's, my, it's a foot race, that I may finish my race with joy. And hold on to that word joy, because we're going to get back to it when we look at Jesus. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul saying, none of the sufferings of this life, past, present, or predicted in the future, These things are not going to move me from me following Jesus to the point of I'm not counting my life dear to myself. I'm not just seeking about my own interest and my own comfort. I am seeking to finish my race with joy. The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus is the one, is the ministry that Paul is living out day by day as the Lord leads and equips and empowers him to perform, to testify to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. All of this is building in flavor in regards to the race. Do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race, this is the word for stadium, 
Those who run in a stadium, they all run, but one receives the prize. What's the exhortation? Run in such a way that you may obtain, acquire it. Everyone who competes, and this is our word, everyone who fights for the prize is temperate in all things, is self-controlled in all things. Not self-controlled in your flesh. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now they do, not, they do it. Those who are running in these, in these races, they're doing it to obtain a perishable crown, that, uh, that wreath that was woven together of, of, of flowers and, and leaves, but it's going to perish, it's going to decay. But we, we're in the race, we're competing, we're fighting, we're running in such a way to obtain the prize for an, in an imperishable crown. Paul says, therefore, I run thus. Not with uncertainty, not without a goal, not without purpose. He says, thus I fight, literally I box, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. That word discipline there means to punch yourself in the face. It means to strike the eye. Listen to the imagery that he's using. The way that Paul is running his race, the way that Paul is following Jesus in his daily life. I discipline, I strike the eye of my body to bring it into subjection, to dominate and to enslave myself to Christ. This is the the word that I use to title this morning's message is dominate. In your race, and we'll get into what this looks like specifically, in Christ, dominate. It's only possible in him. Lest, Paul says, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And the idea is there that I myself should be a phony, bogus, unworthy. Paul continuing on, 1 Timothy chapter 6 as he's writing a letter to a man that he considered his own son in the faith, this this intimate relationship that he had with Timothy. He says, you, O man of God, flee, run away. Flee these things and pursue, the word there, it's chase it, hunt it. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Listen to the words, fight, Same words, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. If you remember from Philippians 3, bring this up all the time, that we are to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us. Eternal life. To which you were called and you've responded through what? You have responded through confession. Confessing the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Don't forget, it's not just the earthly witnesses that you have professed Jesus Christ to. The moment that you confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, heaven erupted with joy. Awesome. Last one. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is Paul's last letter. And as he was encouraging Timothy in his first letter to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, the course. I have completed the course. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want to go through all of those slow because it, it brings full flavor into Hebrews. At the same time, I want you to know where these passages are. As you sit, as we're going to talk about your race in a minute, as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about your race as you are following Jesus. 
You need to sit in the counsel of the entire word of God and what is, what is he saying to me? Is this all about me striving and doing my effort and my energy? How is this race performed? What is Paul, what is Paul talking about? What's the writer of the Hebrews talking about? Listen, this is, this is huge in these two, is uh, this sentence continues because we're not quite there to verse two yet, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse one continues. Let us, and every single time you see the word let, it's a choice. I can't put you in a headlock and force you to do this. Your spouse can't, your parents can't. Jesus will not put you in a headlock and force you to love him. This is your choice. This is the exhortation for each one of us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and choice, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And this is where like big picture, the therefore statement gets back to at the end of chapter 10 in Hebrews, the conversation turns to this idea of endurance and our need for endurance. Thing that I find fascinating about the word for endurance and what it means in this context is the word endurance means that there has been a weight that is put on you. It is a burden. It is something that is there that is pressing down on you. You can't free yourself from it. And you are being told to be steadfast, to bear up under that burden that is on you and keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, if that's the definition of endurance, then how can we let go of and rid ourselves of the weights that are weighing down on us? It's because there's different kinds of burdens. The ones that we have responsibility over is the ones that we have responsibility over. The, ones, the things that we have choice in in our life as we follow Jesus. There are things that push you down into inactivity. They push you down into the dirt. They push you down into discouragement, depression, distraction. I went through Hebrews yesterday morning, just reading in all the different ways. This same, this, this idea of laying aside every weight this is the different ways that it's already been communicated to us in Hebrews. It's the idea of drifting away from Jesus. It's the idea of neglecting our salvation, of having an evil or a bad heart of unbelief, a heart that departs from Jesus. It's dealing with the heart that is hardened by the lies of sin. It's dealing with our rebellion how we fall when we are disobedient, how, we're, how we are made dull in our hearing. I want to hear the word of God. I don't want to hear people proclaim the word of God. How we're unskilled in the word. The danger that we have to just fully fall away and abandon our relationship with Jesus Christ the dead works that we're pursuing, our evil conscience, we're only churning around in our own mind that's not submitted to Christ. We're forsaking the assembling of the brethren. We don't want to hang out with those who love the Lord because I don't want to hear it from them. I don't want them to tell me to look at Jesus. I don't want them to tell me to stop doing what I'm doing. Just leave me alone. This is this idea that's going on. The idea of sinning willfully. The idea of casting away our confidence. The idea of not drawing near to God, but drawing back away from God. The idea of returning back to who we were before we ever met Jesus in the first place. The language here in Hebrews 12, the weights that we are to lay aside these are the things that we have power and control over. These are the things that we need to let go of. These are the things that we need to make the right choices in. These are the things that we need to seek our Lord, our master, our God, who is attentive to us 
and will speak to us. And we'll show it, Lord, what have I heaped up on my shoulders that doesn't belong here? And this is the imagery when it comes to a race. How many of you know a swimmer that's going to jump into a pool with the barbell on their back, loaded down with the weight to squat, and they're going to jump into the pool and start swimming? How successful are they going to be? When you heap upon your back all these weights that don't belong there, you will not grow and mature in your relationship with Christ. Saved, yes. Growing, progressing, which is this idea of running, progress, it won't happen because you're being hindered. And the idea of the, the sins that so easily ensnare us, the imagery for the, Gre- the Greeks and the Romans, they were, they were doing all their athletics naked. They were free from their robes. You're not going to watch, when was the last time you watched a guy who's sprinting down the track or somebody who's running the marathon and they're in their robe? Anybody ever seen that happen before? Only if they're chasing a thief down the road or something, right? It's not an efficient way to run the race. So the idea is these, these sins that are so comfortable to us that we wear like a robe sometimes, these things that, that they're just easy to beset and to entrap. And this, is this idea, these easily besetting things, they're things that have tight control on us. The sins of this world, things that I struggle with, you may not struggle with. Things that you struggle with, I may not struggle with. And this is where you have to individually hear from the Holy Spirit is what is it in your life that is weighing you down that you have control over to lay aside as you follow Jesus? Do you have distractions in your life, relationships in your life, friendships in your life, hobbies in your life, things that aren't evil, but they're just weighing you down? Do you have things that are evil in your life that are bad where the word of God says, do not do this? And you're doing it anyways. And you're making excuses. Your heart is making a convert of your mind, giving you excuses to keep doing what you want to do rather than submitting yourself to the freedom and the joy, and the grace, and the cleansing, and the love of your Savior. Lay those things aside. Now what do all of us do? We lay those things aside, and then we find ourselves putting them back on again, because they're comfortable, and there's a process. Keep laying it aside. That thing that easily besets your mind Maybe you're a bitter person. Maybe you're an anxious person. Maybe you're somebody who worries. Maybe you're somebody that just doesn't believe God loves you. Whatever you struggle with, keep rolling it to him. God, help me. I know what your word says, that I need to rid out of my life this stuff, but I don't find the strength within me, Lord. Help me. And as you submit yourself to him, he will help you. As we were talking about earlier, how many times do I got to walk the same stupid cycle of sin, Lord, marching around this thing? How many times until you free me from this attitude? Until you free me from this thing that has nothing to do with you? How long, Lord? Some, it's the first time you pray. Some, it's 20 years down the road. Some, It's going to be something that you have to continue to submit to the Lord until you take your last breath and trust him in. Lay those things aside intentionally, on purpose, by choice. And by choice, run your race with endurance. Underneath the burden that he places on you. I have the burden to be a good husband. I have the burden to be a good father. I have the burden to be a good son and a good pastor. I have the burden to be a good employee. I have the burden to be a good citizen. I don't find it in me to be successful in any of those things. Maybe for a short-winded breath, maybe for a sprint for like 10 seconds. And this is the idea of endurance. The race that is set before you is being laid alongside of whose race? Look at the next verse. Verse 2, 
chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says that we are to look, looking unto, looking into, attention on Jesus, not on the spectators that you think that are watching you, not on other human beings, not on the course, not on other competitors. This isn't a race against anybody else. Put your eyes. And you can't see them with these physical eyes, right? Put your mind, your heart, looking at Jesus, who is the author. He is the trailblazer. He is the beginning, the founder. He is the authority of our faith. Not only that, he is the finisher of our faith, the completer of our faith. So when it's talking about this endurance in the race, it's talking about endurance in our faith, in our relationship, our trust, our hope, our confidence, our assurance in who Jesus Christ is. Looking to him as the one and as the first one who finished the race. When we look at Jesus, our God who became a man, we're looking at li how life ought to be done. We're watching him in his behavior, in his teachings, in his activities, in his sacrifice. We're watching him run his race. And at the, his resurrection and his ascension and that he's seated at the right hand of his father in heaven, we are looking at the one who finished his race perfectly. That's the one that we're looking to. Not yourself in the mirror, not your strengths, not your weaknesses, not your successes, not your failures, not the person that's walking alongside of you in life and you're saying, well, at least I'm doing better than that guy or gal. Looking unto Jesus in this race because for the joy that was set before him, so for us, we have this race that is set before us. What did Jesus have set before him? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The game, the race, the agony is this word in, in Greek. As the one that we're looking to, the thing that was set before Jesus was the cross. And then what does the word use? It says despising the shame. Despising the shame. This whole idea of the joy that was set before Jesus, Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 I invite you to sit in Isaiah 53, the end of 52, into 53. You want to know who Jesus is? You want to know what it is that he did? Verse 10 of 53 says, It pleased the Lord, it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He, Yahweh, the Lord, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When you, Yahweh, make his, Jesus, soul an offering for sin, he, Jesus, shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord, Yahweh, shall prosper in his, Jesus' hand. Listen to verse 11. Jesus shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. The race, the life, the course, the struggle, the conflict that was before our Lord as he was tabernacling in this flesh. The joy that was set before him. Even though he despised the shame, the nakedness, the exposure, he became sin for you and me. And to help you understand the shame that's involved in this, is there a singular one of us 
that were like the last week of your life, just the last week, the last week of your life played before everybody else in this room right now? Anybody want to say yes? The, avoid, the emotion of avoidance is the emotion of shame. Shame keeps us from proclaiming Jesus Christ. Shame keeps us from being different from anybody else. Shame keeps us from opening up our hearts to another human being that would love us and walk alongside of us in relationship with Christ. We all know what it, what it feels like, the ew of that emotion of shame. Jesus despised the shame. Every single aspect of sin in your life that causes you shame in any fashion, that is what was placed on Jesus as he was dying on the cross. And not just for you, but for every human being. Can you imagine? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, read it. Isaiah 53, read it in comparison and have that in your background as you understand this whole process of what Jesus was going through as he despised the shame. But the shame wasn't the end. Joy is the end because it's he saw, he was looking forward to the fruit of his labor, which is you and I in his presence for all eternity. He resurrected from the dead. He has ascended back to heaven where he came from and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, not only as the author, not only as the first one who completed the race successfully and perfectly, but he is also the judge of the race. So as he is seated at the right hand of power, as you are running your race for the imperishable crown, he's the judge. No other human being, not your own heart, not your own mind. And what, are we, what is the judgment based upon? Are you looking to me? Yes or no? That's it. And as our judge, he judges us through the cross. What he did there. What that means, that death, that sacrifice, that shedding of blood, what that means in all the imagery of the Old Testament, what atonement and covering means, what cleansing means, what freedom from sin means. And then it's not just the grossness of the death of the cross, and yes, we have to sit in that, and yes, we have to meditate in that, but ultimately, we are looking to his resurrection. Because if that man is still dead in a tomb somewhere, then all of us are without hope. But our hope is in his victory over death. That we can look at death and say, death has no victory over me. Death will not dominate me. My sin, it will not dominate me because my sin Jesus died for on the cross. So as I'm looking to Jesus running my course in this life, it's looking to him, being attentive to him. And I need to remind myself as often, daily. Did I tell you last week to look to Jesus? Yes or no? Did I tell you last week to look to Jesus? Does anybody remember? I hope you remember that I said that because if you don't get anything else at all, get that. I'm telling you the same thing this week. Guess what I'm going to tell you next week? Get all of you focused on Jesus. And I know that you can't, because I can't. I know what it's like to be depressed and discouraged and get my eyes on situations, be angry, be in my flesh, distracted, burdened by my own thing. I know what that's like, because I'm a human being. But I know that in my heart and in my mind, I have a constant call. Blake, look at Jesus. Yes, this circumstance has happened. Look at me, seek me, I will guide, I will provide. I am God, I am your savior, I am your hope. Do you wanna look at anybody else 
Are you sick of looking at yourself? Are you sick of looking at your sin? Are you sick of being burned down by everything else in life? Look to Jesus and allow him that freedom that comes. Worship team, come on up. If you, and I know that we are in a spectrum of understanding of who Jesus Christ is. If you have never looked at Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as the one that has delivered you from your sins, as the one who will give you the victory over death, let this be that moment. We're going to have a couple more songs of worship. And during worship, as always, communion is open. Communion, its whole purpose is to put our sight and our faith on Jesus Christ. If you need to put your faith, your sight, your hope, if you need to let go of sin, of those, of those things that are besetting you, those things that are weighing you down and you need him to deliver you, whether it's past sins, current sins, let the first act of obedience that you do come and take communion. Take his body. Remember that your God became just like you. He took on this flesh and he lived a perfect life and he sacrificed himself, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, you in his presence for all eternity. Remember his body. We remember his blood with the, with the cup, with the fruits of the vine. Symbolizing his blood, the covenant, the promise that is in his blood. That through his sacrifice, we have the remission, the removal of sins. And if it's not a first time thing for you, but you're in this position where you need to confess. You have a sin, you know exactly what it is as I am speaking right now that easily besets you. First John tells us that Jesus Christ is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You come to him in confession. You come take what symbolizes his body and what symbolizes his blood and you go to him in prayer and you look to him for cleansing whether this is pride, whether this is bitterness. This may be drugs. This may be a sexual sin. This may be an attitude of a heart. This may be something that you know that God has told you to do and you're looking at your God and you're saying, no, let this be the moment of response and confession that he is Lord. Get your eyes on him and look to him for that cleansing. Look to him for that power to help. And not just in this moment, but as you keep going day in, day in and day out. And if that doesn't fit you, and you're just in the sweet spot with Jesus, then stand with me and let us worship him because he is worthy to be worshiped.